Welcome to the Payroll Podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and innovations in the world of payroll. I'm Nick Day, founder of JGA Recruitment, a specialist global payroll search firm. I'm also a qualified executive coach and a recognized Reward 300 member. And my goal for this show is clear, is to bring you expert guests and payroll leaders who are driving this industry forward. From cutting edge technologies and trends to compliance, analytics, automation, leadership strategies, and more, we're gonna cover it all on this show to help you to deliver accurate and timely payrolls across your organizations. So let's join together in raising the strategic profile of payroll worldwide. Grab your coffee or your favorite beverage and let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to this month's edition of Payroll Question Time, a special March Spring Budget Edition. So gonna help everyone today prepare for year end. Now, more important bit, I'm going to introduce you to our wonderful panel. I'm going to start with myself. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Nick Bay. I'm CEO of JGA Recruitment Group. We're a specialist payroll recruitment provider. I'm also the host of the of uh, the podcast, the Payroll Podcast, where actually there will be an audio of this very episode being released after today's show as well, so do look out for that. I'm a Reward 300 member. Um, I've been working in payroll recruitment now for over 20 years, so I've seen lots of change, probably never more than there's been in the last couple of years. Uh, but that's enough about me. Let me introduce you to our wonderful panel. I'm going to start from my left to right as I view it, Richard George. Introduce yourself if you can, Richard. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, happy Friday. Um, yeah, Richard George, Director of Education at the Payroll Centre. Uh, Simon. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Simon Parsons, uh, Director of uh, Payroll Compliance Strategies at SD Works in the UK. I've been in the industry for some time. Um, I joined Centrefile back in 1984 originally. So just a little while, as with Nick, I'm part of Reward 300, chair the BCS Payroll Specialist Group and an organization called Irene and sits on a number of HMRC panels alongside Richard actually as well. So Richard's on a lot of the panels I'm on at HMRC and other government department areas. So yeah, I have a Master of Science in Peril Management as one of the original cohort. Fantastic. Finally, but by no means least, Andy Nichols, if you can introduce yourself, please. Uh, hi, yes, I am um, work for the Pensions Regulator, have been for the past 11 years nearly, uh, looking at automatic enrollment, helping the payroll industry understand all that and, and the wider pensions landscape. But my background prior to the regulator was all in various payroll roles. And that's me. Fantastic. But the, today's discussion topics are getting ready for the new tax year, payrolling benefits and national insurance, national minimum wage uh, and the increases, uh, the remit of payroll and HR team. So more of a general discussion about how we see the future of payroll in that regard. Uh, coming soon, the SD Works Academy. We'll tell you all about that. Uh, pensions update being led by Andy Nichols. And if we've got time, there'll be some hot topics and a Q&A as well. So let's get everyone involved. We've got 89 people watching today's session at the moment. That number continues to grow. Uh, I'm going to get all of you involved in our first poll. And our first poll is this. How ready do you feel for the new tax year. There's gonna be three options for you here. The first is all is clear and I'm ready to go. Still a few niggles, but we will try and get by or I don't feel prepared at all. Interestingly, then while waiting for those results, we have had a question already pop into the box. I'm gonna ask that to our panel straight away. Comes in from Deborah and says this, we are an organization comprised of a number of legal entities. In recent months, we have seen employees who move between entities being taxed more punitively in early months. Has any of the panel heard of a change of approach from HMRC or similar issues from other employers? Uh, Richard, if I can start with you, please. 
no. Um, I'm not aware of any variation. It, is it a timing issue, maybe, Simon, on the grounds of when they're seeing the change or the move that's causing a crossover? I, I, nothing from my side. That's right. It should all work fairly smoothly in reality, but I suspect maybe just a misunderstanding of how HMRC handle and and what's happening. So in effect, you could think this is a continuous employment, so they've not changed the employer. But if you're moving them around the business from PAY scheme to PAY scheme, they are a lever and a P45 starter. So the lever process and the P45 starter needs to be appropriate and the new employment start point needs to be operated if you're saying well they joined us in 1984 so i'll put the original start date in 1984 and you've moved them to new pay scheme hmrc want to know where all the records are going back to 1984 because as far as they're concerned each pay scheme is not connected at all you're completely separate employment entities but if the p45 process and lever process are working correctly it should be okay but it may just be there's duplication occurring uh, different aspects there and actually the transfer process is mistaken between what hmrc require and what we need as a business for continuous service that's the only thing that comes to mind sure well maybe a question for deborah then is how um, much of you or how long how far back does this go is this a recent thing as we approach year end or has this been something that you've noticed over a longer period of time. We always put that into the questions box and we'll, uh, we'll try and investigate that a little bit further. Right, let's see what these uh, poll results come in then because this will help uh, direct our conversation. Yeah, so all clear is clear and I'm ready to go. 49%, that seems to be the highest score. Still a few niggles, but we'll get by 45%. So it's quite close, Nick. And then don't feel prepared at all as six. Fantastic. So what do we think about those results, panel? Yeah, it's a, it, there's a bit of a cultural thing because I guess for some of us, tax year end hasn't really got here yet. I'll worry about it when it arrives. So there may be an element of that in there. I don't feel prepared at all sort of thing because it's sort of that's tomorrow's problem. However, March is pretty much done, isn't it? So a lot of uh, people will actually be into um, the new year already. In fact, I know we've started our tax year end processing for some clients. The, the window's open. So interesting. However, there have been a few nickel things announced by the government, aren't there? Which I think we've probably come to. What are your thoughts, Richard? Yeah, I, I guess people will be a little more, more comfortable as well because obviously the freezing now uh, on tax and national insurance will reduce variation, um, which I would suggest is a comparatively significant easement for people um, when they're getting to it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. I think we're probably still a bit early. Um, especially when it comes to the, I guess, the output from the tax year end. Uh, um, also, you know, how accurate have people been? How on top of all the NIC changes are people? Because obviously there's been three different rates of NI uh, in the last, well, two different rates, obviously, in the last 12 months. Um, and have that has that been applied correctly and accurately? Um, things like, obviously, directors and such like, um, where there will need to be that averaging. So, yeah, I, I think in some respects, because we've kind of ended up where we started, it's probably an easier year than usual. Um, but I think there is a lot of idiosyncrasy in the actual fine detail. Sure. 
Well, it looks like the spring statement did suggest a little bit of a period of stability, which was good. So let's jump into the new year tax year then. Let's just delve into some of this detail in a, a little bit more clarity. Just to follow back on Deborah's comment, she said uh, to the panel, indeed, it, what these are related to recent changes. So thank you for your feedback. We'll double check the process. So hopefully we can get to the bottom of that uh, legal entity uh, situation. Uh, but first thing here, new tax year. Are you ready? Payrolling benefits. Agents can potentially register rather than clients. So what are the potential ramifications of that? Starting with you, Simon. Well, uh, that bit's probably next year rather than this coming year, as in next year, I mean, 24, 25. But, uh, but it's been a bit of an angst since the uh, formal registration for paralleling benefits and kind has come in that agents aren't haven't been allowed to do it. So we've certainly had a number of our clients saying, well, that's what we pay you for. And there's an element of thinking, yes, but HMRC don't allow it. So only an employer could register. So in some ways, it offers a level of flexibility. However, there are some caveats there because, of course, the agent that does that would have to be um, tax advice approved, which is slightly different than a standard payroll agent. Um, so potentially you're, you're into AML um, due diligence and verification uh, requirements as well with the payrolling benefits. But it is a move forward because I'm sure for many it seemed balmy that your accountant couldn't do this for you. You had to do it yourself. Uh, but there are other things uh, around in the tax advice market that have been a bit like that, like claiming uh, marriage allowance and, uh, you know, all sorts of things that have sort of hit the news where vehicles had been used by some agents, which are a bit unscrupulous and uh, et cetera. So nice step forward. And there's obviously um, a theme emerging from this slide of uh, HMRC seem to be pushing electronic well, it's not a surprise, I would think. Tax has gone digital, right? Surely this, it makes sense that payroll follows suit. What's your view, uh, Richard? Well, I say it, it is the uh, it's the when rather than if um, yes. on the grounds that everything else is in real time. Now, pretty much that we deal with, except for benefits. Um, it, you know, it kind of doesn't make any sense when we're managing everything else the way we're managing it, um, that we're still only making a single return annually. Uh, for benefits that may possibly be amending month on month on month for certain individuals. Um, so, as I said, if I had a pound for every time somebody had said, when is payrolling going to become mandatory, I wouldn't have to be on this probably. Um, because it has, you know, there is obviously a, a slippery slope to it. And as you'll see from this one and obviously the next one as well, um, they are trying to, I guess, reduce and reduce and reduce the capability is it really around p11d um to make it in the end something will have to go but the problem is i don't is, believe is it, richard that you don't do this for the love of it i do yeah. do it for the love of it obviously okay <laughs> but uh, you, you know the, you i guess the same the, pension side andy is that is that going the same way as as, as which is lent towards um uh, yeah, in terms of, yeah, I mean, API is the way forward, for instance, getting data from payroll into pension schemes. Um, the local government pension scheme, for instance, is an annual term, but more and more are going to monthly data submissions. So, and, and the regulator perspective, we're data led. So, it's, you know, so data is key and data is obviously electronic. Paper well, can obviously have data on it, <laughs> which is a lot longer. Yeah.
to interpret. Andy, as a bit of a side, what's the sort of da- obviously the dashboard's been pushed a little bit now, but what's the perception of that load? I mean, is that going to be a monthly update? Do we believe? Um, that's that's all been debated in like for instance annual benefit statements for DB schemes would be an annual value so it doesn't matter when you do it but the ideal thing will be when you log in as an individual to look at what pension schemes you've got there when you prove that you are who you say you are that will then ping a request to all the various pension schemes to say have you got data for this person and they should then ping back the latest in my personal view but um the pension providers i know some payroll people have excellently on this as well to make sure we don't get anything done which makes it difficult for payroll or employers in effect um yeah watch this space really because obviously as you say it's been delayed it was going to be this april to august that the large master trust would have gone live so to speak with a form of um, dashboard but obviously that's been pushed back a bit wait and see but yeah data of that is all electronic isn't it you know a couple of questions coming in already so thank you i can see our attendees are still increasing starts at 80 we're up to 97 now so welcome if you missed my introduction you have just joined us and you want to ask any questions related to tax year end or anything at all actually related to payroll pensions put it in the questions box and we'll get to those as we go through and we've had a couple come in so the first one is this has anyone ever experienced hmrc reporting different values on the government gateway PAYE dashboard to what they have reported. We are struggling to get anyone in HMRC to support with resolving this. We can see our FPS file is correct and it is not a software issue. For example, it all showed correctly this month, then suddenly changed this, uh, then suddenly changed. No credits listed, just the tax and I dropped, but the apprenticeship levy remained the same. We've also had it the other way. Any ideas, please? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, being the chair of Irene, which is uh, representative employers that electronic exchange with the government, um, this was born in 2012 with the uh, it, the introduction of RTI. So um, I guess we've only actually seen the dashboard for the past five, six years. Before that, you probably didn't see it. Uh, what some employers may not have realised is that if they're go back to the 1940s when PAYE first came in, your dashboard has never balanced with HMRC. You prob- they probably just didn't ever tell you. Now, the reality is, Nick, 98% of employers are wonderfully correct and always pretty much are. And then you've got a fluctuating 2%, which kind of shifts a bit. So you may say 10 or 15% over the years have been impacted by this type of thing. Uh, 2% of 1.6 million employers is actually a large number. Um, So there are thousands of employers that experience this all the time. And we're aware from statistical information that's been shared with us that HMRC inadvertently, um, either through data handled by the employer or themselves through their activity because they can't match very well, uh, create approximately 2 million duplicates a year. Um, they have software that tracks and monitors and scans to pick up many of those, much more than in the early days. But actually, it's a, a regular activity, so I can feel for it. But there is a means to get round it, and that is to request a charge resolution case. Um, getting uh, to get that raised is a bit like trying to phone home and get past your children to speak to your spouse. 
uh, sometimes yeah. virtually impossible, but um, uh, depending on their rage, because they just want to talk to you themselves. But uh, and also people are measured on closing calls, so they don't want things hanging. But uh, you need to insist on a charge resolution case that would then get passed to a charge resolution team. Um, but the reality is, and if you speak with colleagues or others in the, in the same situation, you'll find that resolution may take six months to two years. Don't worry about it, though. If you're solid and good, pay the right amount at the right time and have the charge resolution team. Uh, sometimes these things just magically correct themselves. Uh, what I mean is HMRC spot what the issue is and fix it. And other times they may come up for more information. But if you've got a problem and you think it will be fixed in two weeks, the likelihood is it, it won't. It will take some time. But there's an element of don't worry about it, but you do need to ask for a charge resolution case. Otherwise, you will have debt collectors come and they will bash your door down with baseball bats and start grabbing equipment and things and taking it away. So don't ignore it. But if you do raise the charge resolution case, that will stop and it will eventually be dealt with. That's just my thoughts, Richard, who I'm sure will uh, well experience on this as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a number of things. It's, it's the application date of items as well can cause issues, yes. but not as much as they used to. And because it was always that the ERS and I went on later, um, which was always a problem in the past. Um, but it, as Simon said, usually it's uh, if you have done everything correctly and you um, balance back exactly to your FDP, to your RTI, then it is a charge resolution um, to stop, I guess, the walls from coming to the door. But something to ask then, if I may, Simon, and interestingly, you mentioned 2% of uh, 1.6 million. We've got 105 now people joining us on the webinar, and two people have now put, put posts in, our, in my question box to say they're having similar issues. So we're, we're running at about 2% uh, of today's <laughs> webinar as well, suffering the same issues. But Emma um, has gone on to say then, in relation to her question that started this conversation off, should we then be paying what they say or what we think? I would suggest you pay what you think. Because if you pay what they say, they do not believe there is a resolution to be done. No. And you've admitted that their figures are correct. Um, All right? So it's, it's a very difficult situation, isn't it? Because we don't want to pick a fight with the government department, especially one that has so much power. But you're not. You're trying to get it right. So I'd stick with what you believe to be right and allow the charge resolution. But if you settle it, the charge resolution case will be closed and they will uh, use that as you have agreed their figures are correct. So we're now up to 3% as a third person's come to the fore with the same. Uh, is that the same? A when long, um, long, long webinar. Is, is, that the same, is that the same when there um, when their credits unallocated? Um, Potentially so, although they don't see that as a charge resolution case, but they're probably a similar issue. And some of those may go back for years. So um, it's it's interesting to note. You can actually request a copy of your data um, to review what HMRC hold. Uh, they can be a little bit reluctant to give it to you, but you can ask for it. And sometimes it's fairly evident what's going wrong because you may find there's people with multiples, um, people sometimes that join that don't have an Asher insurance number and later 
come on, go into a quarantine state at HMRC. So they've actually put them on a quarantine. They they phone up and say, oh, I've paid the tax. I want my tax code changing. And HMRC may say, your employers never reported you. That usually sends a signal to myself or those that know a little bit about how these systems work, that that doesn't mean the data isn't there because you can see it on your FPS file. You know you've sent it. It means that HMRC have placed them into quarantine because they don't know who they are. Um, sure. And even though the identifying information has come along, uh, they haven't joined them up. Uh, so uh, it's very difficult. Emma has come back to say thank you so much. This is very helpful. I think um, that's probably a question that other people that haven't even come forward yet probably are thankful for that support. That's what our panel is here for. So if you put the questions in and not a question, but an observation, Barbara's written, we have had a similar HMRC issue for our M11 payroll for SMP recovery in that the recovery amount showing on our account doesn't match uh, the FP, the EPS submitted by SD Works. So I've got another question here that's come in. Um, are you aware, this relates to the second bullet point of our slide here, the P11D uh, issue. So are you aware of any changes in P11D uh, slash payrolling benefits for director's loans, which can't be done month on month? Um, well, no, not necessarily. Uh, I, I mean, I guess if you're saying you've still got to do P11D, the announcement in the February bulletin, and I think this is a bit of a shock announcement, and certainly as chair of the BCS payroll specialist group, we've had a number of suppliers come and say, Simon, what's going on? Why haven't they told us about this? And uh, we can't make the changes in time. Now, uh, I'll, I'll put the advert slide. SD Works file P11Ds electronically. So if you're using our services, they are electronic. The announcement in February bulletin was, one, um, you can no longer informally payroll. After the 5th of April, you need to register. So that's people who are, are doing P11Ds but payrolling through the payroll. They're saying, stop it. How serious you take that, I don't know, because that's six weeks notice, in effect, or five weeks, whatever. The other aspect is they're saying, for any P11D submission from 6th of April, it must be electronic. Um, well, that's great for announcement for 23-24, but any submission from 6th of April 2023 is actually 22-23. And of course, you bought your P11D software before. So now they're saying you can't use it if you use paper returns and you printed them all off. So what's going on? So there is a little bit of noise in the industry going on a little bit. Um, but the, I mean, Richard, you were at the uh, meetings we've been. We've got to be careful what we say about some of the content of those because some of them are not in the public domain. But in effect, they seem very strong that any paper P11D submitted after the 6th of April will be sent back in the post, rejected. Yep. I think there's another angle as well. Um, because of the way it's been written and also how it's been broadcast since. Uh, a lot of yes. people have got, to, uh, I guess, have the view that you've now got to payroll. Um, yeah. We've had that you question don't. a lot. Does this mean I can't do P11Ds anymore? Um, which obviously is not the case at all. Um, but we've had a number of people, again, who have been very confused by the principle that they've got to payroll now. Um, and that's certainly not the case at all, uh, not yet. Yeah. So. so the advantage of the P11D, uh, and I'm sure Richard will 
go along with the on this is the advantage of the P11D is you can go outside the tax year. You've got a later deadline. The disadvantage of payrolling is you have to do it in the year. If you don't, you're too late. Yep. And therefore, it's very reliant on you having all of the data at the right time. On time. Um, favorite favorite one being obviously company cars. Um, yes. You know, company cars are comparatively complicated to payroll anyway. But if you have a large, ever-changing fleet, having the correct termination dates, end dates, swap dates can make it substantially difficult to actually manage in real time because you're so reliant on third party. And it could be the same with anything. You could have private health care and the individual cancels with the provider. And you don't know possibly until one, two months after that date that they actually canceled two months previously. So it's, it's, it's still unfortunately a very retrospective process, which is obviously why a lot of people still payroll. Um, yeah. uh, sorry, still P11D yet. Um, but, yeah. you know, the time is coming. But there are still items such as loans that you cannot payroll. Um, yeah. So. so just looking at some of the questions that come in on the back of that, one is um, would correction P11Ds, though, still be paper-based? And that was part of the other announcement in the Employer Bulletin. It's worth looking at it. If you search Employer Bulletin uh, Gov, I'm sure you'll find it, and it's for the February edition. Uh, you'll find that there's another section which uh, tells you that actually all amendments, no matter what year, uh, before uh, 6th of April 2022, cannot be submitted on paper from 6th of April 23. So if you've got any outstanding amendments, get them in so they get there before, um, well, I'd say the 5th, because the 6th of April is, of course, a Saturday. So it's even to certain extent so you need to get them in but uh, no amendments cannot be done on paper either they have to be electronic and that'll be a challenge for some using software that does electronic because amendments probably aren't because you didn't used to be able to do them electronically so, no, it's, so they actually go back to when you did them in paper even if you do them electronically correct. now the amendment may have been in a paper solution that you had previously but um, yes and bringing it back to the dashboard again, uh, Julie's has posted, our issue with the HMRC dashboard is with the allocation of the monies that we pay them. They're always seems, they always seem to have half the PAY amount paid allocated to the following month. Um, they, uh, that has not been closed. I see Simon smiling again. <laughs> uh, yeah, it all sounds so familiar. Uh, I mean, these are elements of, uh, you know, these are sort of specialist areas of mine, Nick as you're probably aware, but they yes. do take quite a bit of effort and resource. Um, yeah, it's, it is troubling. Yes, in the early days, I would say I've not had it recently, but in the early days we had a client that had a demand uh, in relation to national insurance debt because it was a pound out, which was quite funny because the tax liability was a pound up. And there's an element of why are, you, why are you chasing one when it's a pound down where the others are pound up? And so with the employers allocated it wrong. And it's kind of, mm, hold on a minute, um, you don't allocate a T and an N, and we haven't done for years. HMRC have allocated them, not the employer. So it's actually the HMRC error. But I think they're a little bit uh, better in some ways. But I think there's an element of thinking, is there an actually an unallocated um, overpayment from prior year? They're offsetting against the current liability. So they keep on carrying it forward. It'd be an element of looking more in the detail, but some of these are quite 
forensic to resolve and take quite some effort is the only thing I'd say. So there's a amount of, um, yeah, is it a concern? I think it is, but uh, uh, I, I'd raise the charge resolution or point it out and, and take help. The other angle is if you're wanting and you need an organization to help you with that sort of thing, it's sort of contact with someone like Irene. Um, they will, they represent employers to the government on electronic exchange matters and see if they can help. The challenge is through the normal method of contact, you'll find it very difficult to resolve. But the organizations, even the CIPP, I'm sure if Sam was here, would tell us they can do it. They have contacts with senior people and CTIO. However, if, if those contacts are used, the first question they will ask is whether you've gone through the correct process. Yeah. But if you have and it's failing to get anywhere, they will then step in. But if you haven't, they'll tell you to call the employer's helpline, listen to the music for an hour and a half and log it. We need to put the payroll uh, career song on there just to keep people entertained for an hour. That'll cheer people up while they're waiting. Well, I was thinking <laughs> we, we could put the American Payroll Association one on there and it would drive everybody mad, wouldn't it? People logging off before they get an answer anyway. Last bit here, last bit on the P11D, please. Last question is coming, comes in from Susan, says, we only have 40 employees on the P11D. Uh, the rest are payrolled. Surely we can just use HMRC online portal and this should be okay to submit amended P11Ds on here as well. Uh, it, it, you're quite right, you can. So uh, the tool isn't actually available to you yet for it, but uh, it will be. It's promised to be available in April, May and June. Um, you can file P11Ds up to 500 individuals. The challenge, I mean, if I had 499, I might go, few. I think the problem is, is when you come to enter them, because you'll have to enter everything uh, manually. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. There's still a manual bit for payroll people to do, all this fear of automation. There's always a task to be found. Let's shift it on the slide, and then we've, we've covered, and P11Ds are always a hot topic when it comes to year-end. We've got a little bit of um, information to pass on to our audience um, on the national minimum wage as well, and some NRA changes. Then we just moved on from the slide, but actually, um, there, I don't know if you wanted yes. to just, just yeah, run through the national insurance cost 1A, uh, 1B change. Yeah. Well, the predominance, I think, just to point out is your class, even if you payroll, there's still a class 1A liability and that's still annual and it's something you pay over in July and you've got a report. But it, we've got had a funny year. So the class 1A rate for 22-23 is a blended rate, right? It's not 13.8%. So just be aware. So your accruals, if your accruing values and putting aside may all be wrong. 
So you've got to reassess, apply the annual rate. That's because the assessment point is the 5th of April. So it's the blended rate that applies on the 5th of April that applies to all benefits in the year. It's not when the benefit was received or anything. So you've got this funny blended rate. And then, of course, for next year, 5th of April 24, it reverts back to 13.8%. So just be aware of that. So there are differences because that can be confusing because you're paying it in July. So we then get our years mixed up. You're paying in July for last year. Sure. Yeah. Um, and for those that want to find out um, documents related to the new taxi, I've put a link in the uh, the chat notes. I think it's gone to our entire oh, audience. You. Find out more at payhr.uk forward slash library. So have a look at that and you can uh, hopefully find any answers to your questions that we haven't tackled today um, in there. And Susan just commented to say thank you, Simon and Richard, for your responses to her question as well. Right. Let's move over to national minimum wage, a common topic on this show. Uh, always lots of questions related to this. Uh, we know that national minimum wage is increasing. Does that mean you need to look at your benefits packages? Also, an opportunity for all of you here to put your questions in the box if you have any related to salary sacrifice, cost of living or anything else that may be pertinent to national minimum wage. Right. Uh, let's uh, come back to yourself, Richard, then. and wonder if you can give us a bit of an overview on where we are. Yep. So obviously the low pay commission um, actually fulfilled the review of uh, wages in the UK. Um, so it isn't just based on inflation. Uh, which is why it isn't at an inflationary rate. Um, it is average earnings increases, average mean salaries, um, am amongst other areas. So principally, the Low Pay Commission uh, make a suggestion uh, to the government um, pre-Christmas, um, which is either taken or not, and obviously usually it's taken. So in principle, because of the cost of living, because of everything else, um, the general increase from the 1st of April is 9.7%. Uh, so that's from the 1st of April or the first full pay reference period on or after, uh, which is also very important. Um, people always ask, why is that? Well, principally, it's because the audit is based on the pay reference period, not on the month. So the pay reference period has to be correct for the audit, which is why we don't adjust within a pay reference period. But that's obviously a sideline. So 9.7% across the board. They've continued with the removal of the apprentice rate, aligning it to the under 18s. Um, but where we were expecting to see change this year was the further reduction in age on national living wage. So originally it was 25, dropped to 23. This year was meant to drop to 21, uh, but there has been a further 12 month delay on that variation. So it is expected next year that the national living wage will be 21 years old. Uh, and I guess the probable reasoning behind um, the higher rate of change to that group, so the 21 to 22 year olds is over 10% this year, is I guess to bring it closer in alignment to the national living wage so that when they do amend next year, uh, if that's still the case, then obviously the pay gap difference will be a lot smaller and therefore the net effect on quite a big demographic uh, will not have such a large impact. So. Obviously, national minimum wage, uh, national living wage this year is £10.42. Um, the under 22s is £10.18. Uh, it's good off the top of my head, wasn't it? I really need to get out a bit more. Um, <laughs> and on those grounds, the variation is already quite small, uh, but we do expect that change next year. Um, next year, I believe, is year 10 of the plan, um, which is two thirds medium wage um, for 24. 25 
but principally it is a big increase probably the biggest i've ever seen uh, we've had a lot of feedback of the concerns of the small businesses mostly that that is a substantial increase um, and principally you also have to look at it on the grounds that if you're increasing your lower paid due to the national living wage increase it then cascades up the business um, that you are going to therefore have to pay possibly a more significant increase than you were going to uh, to the remainder of your workforce as well so lovely um, the more the better but obviously the net effect especially on SME is is quite challenging I would say yeah. what are the other considerations we need to think about here Simon in relation to cost of living salary sacrifice and um, yeah it's, it's a big subject though isn't yeah. it well yeah and I'll talk about one that we haven't got listed on there but will is also affected by the national minimum wage increase. I mean, historically, we'd say national minimum wage related to those on lower paid wages. But with the increases, it's starting to capture groups that wouldn't necessarily have been considered to be lower wage uh, maybe five or six years ago. So it is creeping up a bit. It's catching up with other wages and impacting it. So one area is statutory maternity pay alabaster rule. So the rise in national minimum wage is considered a wage rise for alabaster. So if that's affected someone's uh, normal pay now, that in effect goes back to the qualifying week of any maternity leave calculations and they're due a rise on the six weeks uh, SMP higher rate. And it could actually impact the lower rate as well if they're only being paid 90%. Um, of because their earnings were under the 154 or whatever it is coming up for the new year a week. Um, so there are impacts on the alabaster principle. And you could say, oh, well, that means we just adjust it from April. It doesn't. It means you adjust it going back up to a year, up to 15 weeks, up to eight weeks, depending on where the maternity is. So that then uh, sort of plays into what about the benefit packages because we're operating salary sacrifice pension scheme we've got a bike we do childcare, and of course we have plenty of money to get the 50 pounds a week childcare vouchers but now we've got this it's now reduced it to 30 pounds difference but of course we're going to still let them do the 50 well there's an element if you could find yourself in breach of national minimum wage because salary sacrifice reduces national minimum wage earnings so, and if it does then you either have to cap or think of some other means now lots of employers may say oh that's all right we'll deduct it off them instead the problem is who are they paying the deduction to so um, if that's to an employer scheme then they're playing that to an employer and deductions for the benefit of the employer also reduce national minimum wage so you're still in breach you haven't actually changed anything um, there may be an element of consideration is that the case with pensions why are you changing a salary sacrifice arrangement does that but the hmrc guidance talks about capping not about deducting so it, it gets you to apply caps and say okay limit the benefit you give if that's what you're going to apply but you can't start deducting something off them. So, for example, we think, oh, well, they're buying the bike, aren't they? They're not buying a bike. You're loaning them one. They're paying you as an employer for the loan of the bike. Uh, and so it's understanding the arrangements. But it's interesting, isn't it? And, of course, this all affects cost of living. 
Uh, and that's why the national minimum wage change is coming in is uh, as part of cost of living activity. Well, and inflation. Um, so offsetting the inflation aspects there. But Andy may have a comment. I don't know or thought on salary sacrifice and pensions, but there's an element of you might need to review your flex spend schemes and how your benefit packages are because you may find um, they are breach. Andy? Yeah, no, I agree with Simon. Yeah, you've got when national minimum wage goes up, you just got to look at what you're doing with salary sacrifice. And you can't obviously when people are on SMP only, there's no money to recover that salary sacrifice amount from. So therefore, you cannot deduct it from the individual. And is the from a pension perspective, it's an employer contribution. So in fact, the employer is due to pay all of that without recovery from the individual because there's no amount there's no, unless you pay no MP or something like that, occupation maternity pay from which perhaps you can if your contract between yourself as the employer and the individual allow you to do that for salary sacrifice purposes otherwise possibly you put them onto normal contributions and pay normal contributions if your agreement for salary sacrifice agreement allows you to convert from salary sacrifice to contributions otherwise it will become a full employer contribution the sacrificed amount plus the normal employer contribution based on the pay the person would have had had they not been on maternity leave which will have just been increased if it's if national minimum wage has resulted in alabaster kickoff yeah we'll have a question coming from tammy here that says our pay reference period is a calendar month if an employee works over their contracted hours and banks the hours for two weeks they would fall below national minimum wage for those weeks but wouldn't fall below national minimum wage when looked at monthly. Is this okay as the pay reference period is monthly at the week? So, do you want me to do this one? So, it's pay reference, it's pay reference periods. Um, it's not down to the calendar whatsoever. The principle of the audit of national minimum wage is what hours have been worked within the pay reference period, and that would include obviously contractual hours, extra hours and overtime against what has been paid for that pay reference period. So there could be a situation, for instance, where some of the pay is in the following pay reference period. Well, for audit, it has to go back into the correct one for that calculation to be maintained for the national minimum wage, unfortunately. Yeah, so if I just clarify what Richard's saying, and agree with Richard. So um, the requirement is you have to pay national minimum wage. And your allowance, as Richard's pointing out, is the relevant pay reference period or the next. You can't go beyond. But when you come to actually find if there's a breach, you have to bring that forward into the relevant pay reference period. Now, if you're paying it two reference periods later, the uh, it doesn't count. You're actually in breach. Yeah, you can't kind of fix it. You could declare it and, and say, well, this is my mitigating but you've breached national minimum wage. And the other point in that scenario is, and if that's in a new national minimum wage level arena, that breach has to be paid at the new rate, not when the work was done. So your allowance is the relevant pay reference period or the next. And a pay reference period maximum length is one month. So this is where it gets very problematical for quarterlies etc because the law says you have to have paid it within the pay reference period or the next so if you paid it two months later you've breached national minimum wage law 
uh, it's not allowed. There are exceptions to that. Directors, they don't have to be paid in that manner because they're not policed on that basis. Um, but be careful, be very careful. This is why I always get a little bit worried when people say that their weekly payroll and they pay two weeks in arrears. There's an element of, hmm, you might constantly be in breach. There is a, a get out and that section uh, regulation 9C of the National Minimum Wage Regulations, which allows uh, uh, allocation in relation to timesheets that may allow a different extension. But even then, as Rich is pointing out, when it actually comes to audit, you've then got to kind of bring it all back to the right point to a check a real breach. So um, take some care. Regulation 9C, there's some good knowledge there. That's why we have you on our expert panel. I'm loving that. And uh, Tammy's come back saying yes, thank you. Very helpful, Richard. Very helpful, Simon. Uh, well, look, we've got 104 people watching this on this happy Jolly Friday. Uh, let's jump in, get them all activated again with our next poll. And this is quite interesting. I went to a uh, an event yesterday held by Caxton, which is all about linking financial wellness and financial health to the payroll process. Well, this poll is all about that as our next section of the show, which is, should the responsibility of financial wellness sit with the remit of payroll or HR managers? Response options here are payroll, HR, or it should be collaborative and shared. So put your uh, responses in that. But an interesting topic. This is something that I don't think we've necessarily been discussing uh, pre-pandemic and that now it's right in the middle of the payroll conversation. It shows up just how far payroll has come. Um, we're also, and I think we can start this conversation now while waiting for the results to come in, because the next part of the show is going to be talking about the remit of payroll and HR teams and whether or not then we need more collaboration, whether collaboration is indeed improving between payroll and HR. Is that getting better? And how valued do payroll managers feel right now by their HR counterparts? So um, let's kick this off. Let's come to you, Andy. Um, if we can to start with what's your view on the the collaboration that the, the current i don't know the current state of play of the payroll professional do you think it's uh it, it, it's it's more aligned now with hr is it getting better that relationship um yes i mean my recollection from the days of working in payroll was that hr was could could always have improved the supply of information to payroll, et cetera. So the payroll probably knew more about the rules and everything else. Um, but I think as people, because all the new things keep getting added, the benefit, reward, um, even pensions, everything has become much, much bigger now. So I think the payroll, HR, finance, pensions, especially if you work for a large employer where you've got um, professionals all in those areas, um, you 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 have to work together really to provide help and support to the to the workforce. Um, so it should be, hopefully, it's a collaborative thing. But payroll have the data as well. So I think um, people look at their net pay, don't they? So payroll is a very good starting point for this. One thing we do know is the relationship now between how a payroll is operated. And we're not talking about just paying people accurately on time, but the, the, all things that, you know, the, the holistic things that payroll could input and, and influence now has a huge impact mm -hmm. on the attraction and retention of staff. So it's much broader now in terms of the impact. Uh, certainly a negative payroll operation can have. There's no, no point having the most strategic HR director in the world having all these wonderful ideas if the 
the end of the day, they're not going to get it will matter. Um, but what's your view, Simon? You're someone who's been immersed in this world for a long time. You've, you're in a, a payroll HR services business. You're working with HR people and payroll people. What's your view on this uh, relationship at the moment? Well, yeah, and I think it's getting critically more important. Years and years ago, um, we could have probably said that uh, payroll and HR could be the opposite end of the office and not talk to each other, really, apart from have the occasional moan at each other by the fact they hadn't passed through the new starter information on time, Mm -hmm. etc. But these days, collaboration is essential for successful working. Um, There's so many things, but I still see it culturally as being a little bit difficult in some areas. So there is an, an element of change that they need to hold hands with yeah, each other. A just lost oh, sorry. Can you hear me uh, still? We can hear you, Simon. Yeah, yeah sure. So I think yeah, there's a lot more what, let's, let's, let's get to those yes. poll results and we'll on. up this conversation. Yeah, let's do it. How are those results looking, David? Here we go. Well, so I can't read those percentages. I'm going to come to you, Richard. If you can read out, read out okay, so for those listening on. audio only. Yeah, no, it's fine. So obviously payroll are uh, getting a bit slopey, slopey shoulders. Three percent <laughs> payroll. Um, very good effort. So with payroll people on the call, not my problem. Um, HR 24 um, and collaboratively 73. How's that sit with you then, Richard? You've got the results. You see them in front of you. Well, I, think, I think if you look at this in a couple of years' time, it'll be very, very different. Um, but I guess going back to the original conversation, the whole collaborative nature has to be more um, intricate purely because of the way that payroll job has changed. Um, you know, 15 sure. years ago, payroll was far more an island where it was just, you know, pay tax and sick and maternity or whatever. While now there is so much more incorporated in the role, whether it be benefit based, wellness based anyway, um, that uh, I think it's almost impossible now to be insular. But I think the big change is possibly, especially when we look at financial wellness, is the way that people are going to be paid. Um, There is a growing undercurrent um, of pay on demand, um, which is something I'm guessing we're going to talk about anyway. Um, and if it hasn't touched you yet or it hasn't come up, trust me, it will. Um, there are already areas of um, organisations and certain sectors where it's already a non-negotiable um, because it is becoming the norm. Um, it's these blooming millennials, as I mentioned on the pre-call, and I'll say it again now. Um, everybody wants everything now. Everybody wants everything straight away. Um, and unfortunately, pay, pay is one of them. Um, so that requirement of financial wellness is going to become more and more important um, as whether we like it or not a lot of businesses have to adapt to the variations caused by demanding pay Um, you know it's one of those bizarre situations of well we don't want to give our staff money before we usually do Um, but it's kind of putting your head under a stone because let's be honest, if they want the money, they're already getting it. Um, but surely it makes more sense that the provision is free and you have the availability and awareness to give them the support as well. Um, sure. So there is that financial wellness let's, aspect. To it. Let's jump back into the slides just so that people can see this and come away from the poll for a moment. I guess the, a broader question then, if we go back when I first started in this industry 20 plus years ago, 
Um, when we dealt with HR recruitment at that time, of course, it wasn't known as HR, it was known as personnel, replacing personnel managers. And of course, they've adapted and evolved to, to human resources. It's evolved again. Potentially now a lot of people are no longer CHROs. We're looking at CPOs, you know, chief people officers. So with that in mind, with the way that payroll is evolving, we're talking about now bringing pay on demand into the, the payroll process, looking at financial um, wellness of employees, which of course links to mental health and employee contributions, attraction, retention, all these wonderful things. If we're not quite sure yet where the responsibility lies, but we are all agreed, or at least 73% of us are, that we should be collaborating more, do we think we're going into an age where payroll might need a bit of a rebrand? Simon. Um, not necessarily, uh, Nick, and it's something we've debated a couple of times because I guess that some areas would actually say, ah, oh, let's call payroll reward uh, uh, or something else. And I think I think it's certainly part of the collaborative group that covers it, but requires a skill set which is different. But the problem is, um, uh, I think we tend to try and put something in one area only, but increasingly we need a team and we need to operate as a team. And that's more than just a team of payroll people or HR people. That's a team that's mixed. So you need the mixed capability. And try and give some examples. So with national minimum wage, you could say that's a financial calculation in payroll, isn't it? Well, absolutely it's not because payroll can't control when the manager opens the door and starts the time recording or requires them to stay or they're told to train at home with no pay or, or, or. So there's an element of, National minimum wage is about the whole business process and attitude. It's not just about the pay. And then you go into gender pay gap. There's an element of you may be able to get the data, but the analysis and the requirement is a business thing. So you need everything joined together. So there's an element of payroll will pay its part. But do I think that we should call payroll something else? I'm, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of it, to be honest, Nick. I think, uh, you know, we should be proud of the industry and stand up. But we need to work in partnership. And uh, historically, that may be seen as a bit of a class thing. So you, you're the workers, we're the managers, etc. And there's an element of that's, uh, it needs to be more equal in footing. And, and so the, we're equal partners in a relationship that brings value to a business. That's a little bit of the thoughts I have, but, uh, but yeah. Not too, not too dissimilar. I think maybe the future that, that we can actually just broadens the, the remit of payroll. So maybe here, the future title will be the remit of strategic payroll and HR. So there's a, there's a definition between those looking at the, the broader impact of payroll. And I think that is the strategic element um, as opposed to, you know, payroll is all encompassing at the minute. It always has been just about paying people on time compliantly and that still applies but it has a broader impact on others and i think adding the word strategic for those that are involved in that nature of work um i think will probably cover a lot of um the new responsibilities that are starting to fall under the remits of, of, of the payroll profession that's my personal view i don't think the word needs to change but i think there could be a uh, a broadening out of, of the route of the route that you take within that industry or, or where you get to richard what's your view you've worked in senior payroll management well, roles Global corporate. Yeah, I mean, you know, we often hear now payroll and reward um, is the sort of moniker that likes to sit over the top of it. Um, but one is the other. I, but I guess also, I look taking a slightly different angle. There has never been a better time to instigate the strategic value of payroll, given what happened for the last two years. Um, obviously, employ. Sorry. 
employers. So we wouldn't be having this conversation pre-pandemic, would we? Let's be honest. Absolutely. So whether employers liked it or not, and whether they wanted payroll locked in a little room in the corner, then they had no choice than to use payroll strategically, reviewing what happened during COVID. Um, But going even further than Simon's view, that whole angle of strategy, but also the understanding of the implications is more important than ever. Let's use another example, um, benefits. You know, the way we keep staff is great benefits. Um, Salary is the short term satisfier. And what is the most exponentially growing benefit in a business currently? Well, you'd probably say it's EV leasing. Um, There are phenomenal numbers of people going to the likes of uh, Tusker and various other businesses. And it looks great. It is very appealing. Nick, work for me. Here's a brand new electric car every three years and we'll pay for everything. And you get you only pay 60 percent of the lease value. Well, there is so many implications to an EV leasing scheme. The effects not only on salary on national minimum wage, taking us back to an earlier section, but also things like the difference in lease value, depending on where somebody lives. There's so much integrated requirement that may well get very easily overlooked. But as payroll people, we understand those implications. You know, what happens when a lady goes on maternity? What happens when somebody's pay reduces? Well, unless you have the right scheme with the right rules behind it and obviously uh, exit strategies, all this stuff is really key. And I'm using that as a prime example because that's the thing we seem to be seeing so much of at the moment. But without that integral, basically um, centric relationship between the different parties involved, how can it work? And you can actually end up. Yeah, I'm building on what you said, really, Richard. I think this is where the collaboration is so important, bringing it back full circle, is because with all the complexity of the particular situation you just highlighted, the reality is if if the payroll professional department gets that wrong, that employee leaves that business, potentially under, you know, a a cloud as well. And you see the legal ramifications of that later on and and the, the claims that may come with it. But if we get that payroll bit wrong, it impacts on the whole process of HR as well. That's why it's so collaborative. And that focuses so much on retention. Get paid employees right correctly um, with in as many innovative ways as you like. But get that bit right and they'll stay and they'll be committed. Get it wrong and they'll walk out the door. Interestingly, I'm going to uh, move it on because we've got a, a great academy I want to um, raise everyone's attention to. But I've had a, a comment I thought was a nice way to finish that little section from, from Joanna. It just says, Payroll is the department that fixes the issues that HR creates. Okay, no HR people on this show. Maybe 98 of them are payroll professionals. If there's an HR person on the show, apologies, but it made me chuckle. If people saw me smiling while Richard was going through his response. I read that. It made me chuckle. So there we are. Listen, let's jump on to the next section. We've got a wonderful Academy um, piece. I want to just raise awareness for this show is all about raising awareness. It's coming soon. It's the SD Works Academy launching in April. It's a unique mix of payroll, social, legal, HR, and L&D knowledge. Um, specialist people like Simon on this very show and experienced trainers will be making legislation clear and practically applicable uh, and will help you learn uh, online and physical, live, or in-demand, so blended learning approaches, whether um, theoretical or practical. I don't know, Simon, if you've got anything you want to add about what's coming, just to bring it to life for those that may be interested in finding out more about the SD Works Academy. 
Uh, sure, and, and, and thanks for the opportunity there. Um, the Academy is very successful across Europe. Uh, in Belgium, it's very uh, renowned. Uh, SD Works is a, a social secretariat status, which is a sort of a, a legal government type thing. And the training is very popular. And it's something we're bringing into the UK. I think some of the things we're talking about here uh, today, RTI problems, national minimum wage, holiday pay, etc., are fairly complex areas. So the start of the academy is actually looking at the um, parallel HR and legal type areas uh, of um, stuff that comes from specialists. So we have uh, uh, lawyer partners and uh, ourselves as payroll specialists dealing with some of those. It will then expand into other areas, but uh, it's seen as an online tool. You can go and click on a course and take. So, um, yeah, it's coming soon. In fact, Thursday, the 13th of April, I think. Thursday, it has its 13th UK launch. of April. Fantastic. So look out for that. And, of course, you'll find it on the website where you'll also find uh, the uh, place you can sign up for the next PQT. But if we haven't finished yet, we've got pensions to get through. Our resident pensions expert, Andy Nichols, is going to guide us through the latest updates, the age changes and more. Uh, I'll put a link as well for those who might be interested in finding out more about what Andy's got to say. But, Andy, take us away. What are the pensions updates we need to be aware of? Well, I guess the, the key thing is obviously what the uh, the Chancellor announced in terms of um, the lifetime allowance, which is going to be removed. And so it is at £1,073,100 at the moment. But from the 6th of April, it becomes unlimited. And they'll obviously sort out the legislative side of that, um, which means that those who are no, – that's the amount you can put into a pension scheme. Some people I've got higher than that amount and they're protected and they've got protected tax status for their pension savings so there's a lot of okay what does it all mean and just waiting on DWP to clarify that and then as the regulator we will um, issue guidance and things along those lines um, because it needs to be sorted out what the protected tax status for these individuals got more than the million as it was set, because obviously those people now can be saying, actually, why don't we join the scheme from the 6th of April onwards? We could go back into the scheme or we when re-enrollment comes along, um, will they get automatically re-enrolled? You may have them flagged not to be re-enrolled because if they've got tax protected status, then as an employee, you can choose not to enroll them or re-enroll them. So all that needs to be clarified. So don't, I think the logical thing for the moment is don't do anything. Um, if the individual says I'd like to opt in or get re-enrolled, then that's their choice. Hopefully they've been in touch with taxman to work out what the implications are. There's quite a lot in the background. I think that lifetime allowance being unlimited but they're also capping the amount of tax-free cash you can take to 25 percent of the current lifetime allowance so but those with tax protected status previously probably have a higher entitlement to a tax-free allowance so it is really messy and complicated is what i'm really trying to get across here so don't do anything until you get more information on it because also as this lifetime allowance thing is gone away the the annual allowance amount you can have into a pension scheme every year put in there has gone from 40 to 60,000 whether that's DC or the defined contribution money purchase or whether it's defined benefit 
defined benefit isn't the amount you pay in, it's what your benefit is worth between the beginning and the end. And there's a formula behind that. So don't don't try and guess it. Just look for, you know, there's there's obviously there'll be stuff on HMRC's website, etc., to work out what that means. But it's gone up. And for those who've already tried to take benefits from their pension scheme, there was a £4,000 cap, and that's gone up to £10,000. Or if you earn more than £240,000 currently, everything you start to earn above every £2, you lose £1 of the annual allowance. Um, and really the people, if you're thinking, I don't anything about this, which is quite possible, and it's okay because personally you're probably not affected and you may not have people on your payroll who are affected. Um, but if you, but you may have people affected. So for instance, you might have people who can only, at the moment only paying up to 40,000 in employee and employer contributions in the DC scheme. But in fact, they're so well paid that they will pay more in and you might be capping them and then giving them some extra cash to compensate them for the fact you can't pay extra. Well, look what's going to happen to that? So a lot of thought beyond payrolls, remit at one level, HR, payroll, finance, everyone's got to get together. We, but we've also got to establish what exactly those rules are going to be. Um, and I guess we see what the legislation actually says. So watch this space. But obviously, there's only a couple of weeks, four to six of April, if that. Yes. Um, so, yeah. We could have done me more time, really, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah, the the, re, the the whole type enrollment question has come up with us several times now. You know, yeah. the different what difference does this now make to those people who have certificates of coverage? Um, because obviously previously yeah. you, you dropped them straight off the list. Well, now by rights they'll be eligible. Part, sort of, but on the other hand, maybe because they're entitled to a higher lump sum based on their protected status rather than the 25% cap on the current lifetime allowance, which the government are proposing for future, then maybe they need to maintain, it's, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I can assure you that in the background, we're pedaling very fastly to try and find out, as no doubt DVPR, PR, mm -hmm. to try and establish yeah. what this actually means in practice. Well, you look like a Excuse swan, me, Andy, paddling, paddling underneath, you look gracious yeah. above the water. What can I say? Go on, Simon. Yeah. Well, and I think, yes, yeah, so it is, and it is a watch and see for us as payroll. Mm. If we've got exemption cases, I think we just need to keep an eye on it because we may find that suddenly the exemption no longer applies for pension AE. That's the fear. Mm. But if it doesn't, you can't assume that the software will just pick that up because it'll have an exemption marker. So you probably mm. need to remove it. So they then fall into either triennial re-enrollment duties. That's a question, is it? Or do they fall into ongoing monitoring? And so they'll be enrolled as soon as they become uh, an eligible employee. And I guess those things we don't know yet. But I think we need yeah. to keep an interest in it because mm. it may affect our scheme when the rules change. Well, certainly yeah. we'll see that now. I was going to say, as soon as I know, I will be communicating it and it will go out and then the payroll industry will know and CIPP will publish it. Simon with all the various groups and, and Richard as well with his contacts and stuff can spread the news. Yeah, I think if my uh, my re-enrollment was April 2023, um, I may well be hanging fire on that one for a little bit um, because mm. I'm guessing it's still going to be pretty much up in the air in the next two weeks yeah. um, or, or doing what I would normally do. Because um, obviously a retrospective adjustment is probably going to be a better idea. 
Yeah, the individual needs to know, doesn't it? The individual needs to know, do I need to continue my protective status or can I now start to go into a scheme? What's the best thing to do? You know, so, yeah, pension schemes will need to get involved, HMRC, regulator, DWP, Treasury and everything. You know, it's all to be resolved. The interesting thing we get every year is uh, discussions on the tax relief status of pensions. And again, there's yeah. been nothing. Take no. away from the speculation because the 28th of April will be our next show. We'll be able to bring all of that to our nine to five people that are here now. So rest assured, we'll bring any updates we can to the next episode. But we do. We've got a... Um, uh, a question that's come in I'm keen to get to before we close the show today. Uh, it's a random question. Uh, it comes in from Susan. It says, we have an examiner payroll where, um, payroll where exempt from NIC but subject to tax. These are self-employed workers. It's a regulated question, but can these people be auto-enrolled? I know self-employed workers are not normally enrolled, so it's a bit of a random question. Um, if they're workers, therefore, so you're the employer and they're workers. So not employees, but the workers, then automatic enrollment will apply. So being truly self-employed outside the scope of AE, but automatic enrollment talks about individuals such as employees who will be covered, definitely. And then people who are workers, people who work for the employer. So when you think about, for instance, Uber drivers are workers, automatic enrollment applies to them. But they're not so employees. Examiners or teachers, then it sounds like they will probably apply to them as well. But it sounds like could be, could very yeah. well be. You need to see what the agreement is. You may need to seek legal advice just to get, get that clarified. Yeah. Sure. It's about the control and as well. Individual has, and it'd be unusual and, for someone truly self-employed to be under a PAY scheme. Yeah. So there's an element but, of a bit of a mix. Yeah. What are they? And how long do they? Are they? doing their exam examining form because you can postpone for three months even if they are workers which it sounds like they could be you can postpone them for three months which may go take them beyond the period of time that there are marking exams etc obviously could decide to enjoy that three month period does the er contribution apply the employer contribution yes so if they get automatic enrolled or yes. they choose to opt in and get enrolled there'll be an employer contribution yeah Exactly. Someone's come out saying exactly. Great. Well, we've hit the nail on the head there. So, well, a little Friday treat. We're finishing slightly earlier than usual. A huge thank you to Simon Parsons and Nichols and Richard George for joining us on PKT today. Thank you to the about 105 as well of you at one moment for joining us today on the show as well. Of course, don't forget to sign up for the next PQT, which is taking place on the 28th of April. You can sign up at sdworks.co.uk forward slash PQT and hopefully We'll have more information around some of the, uh, the pensions uh, issues in particular that uh, Andrew was just talking about, yeah. a bit of an update for that show. So I'll just wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of the Payroll Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and gained valuable insights and inspiration to advance your payroll career or your payroll operation. If you haven't already, please, please do subscribe to the show so you never miss a future episode. And if you found this podcast helpful, please take a moment to leave us a little review on your preferred podcast platform. It's your feedback that really helps me to improve the show and, of course, attract new listeners so we can continue to raise the profile of the payroll industry for all. Finally, if you know anyone who could benefit from this payroll podcast, please do share it with them. Let's spread the word and build a vibrant community of payroll professionals worldwide. 
Thank you, of course, for listening. My name is Nick Day. Please do look me up on LinkedIn and send me a connection request. In the meantime, I look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the Paywall Podcast real soon.